Before we embark upon this <laughs> really technical chapter, I also realized that in our last class, while we were, you know, finishing the chapter, or we just mildly touched on the chapter of Rabindranath Tagore, one thing I missed reading out, which I thought was actually very, very beautiful, I remember reading this as a child in school, was this poem that Master puts in of Tagore's. And so let's just tune into this poem for a moment because it, um, it really sums up the spiritual path so beautifully. Of course, it was written more as a call to independence, a prayer for independence for our country at that time. Page 259. Page 259, the last page of chapter 29. Where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depth of truth, where tireless striving stretches its arms toward perfection, where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sand of dead habit, where the mind is led forward by thee, into ever-widening thought and action. Into that heaven of freedom, my father, let my country awake. Beautiful, isn't it? Imagine that kind of freedom for any nation. I'm sure we're still all striving towards that, where every word is inspired by truth, where we've not created narrow domestic walls of this is mine, and everything else is not mine or belongs to somebody else separate from me, where the power of reason given to us to grow in this life is not being led purely by habit that we've created, that we've been grown up with, but that reason's being fed ever new by divine inspiration. This is not just about a country, isn't it? It's about the nation of our own consciousness the little divisions we've made inside our own selves, the subconscious habits that drive everything that we do. And into that heaven of freedom, my Father, let us awake as well. Now we're on chapter 30, the law of miracles. Let's see what these laws are. And as I said, uh, it's a fairly technical chapter. It goes into a lot of science and <laughs> some of it can, you know, especially as we read it here, might seem just a little heavy or a lot of it might just pass through you. But we won't worry too much about that. We'll read it and see if there's something worthwhile to draw out of it. We'll draw that. Otherwise, we'll just continue on because to a certain degree, it's helpful. It's nice to know some of these things. It's, I think, pleasing and satisfying to the intellect. But uh, for a devotee per se, uh, we don't need to get that involved in, you know, what is this particular law of miracles because every day of our life is really a miracle. And as long as we recognize that and we feel that deep grace and gratitude in our hearts, then it doesn't quite particularly matter how it's happening. However, there are some very, very interesting insights as well. I found also many new words. That <laughs> yeah. I just had no idea what that meant. I had to go to Google Dictionary, first in English, then in Spanish. <laughs> it was an interesting evening last night. 
Okay. The great novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote a delightful story, The Three Hermits. His friend Nicholas Rorick has summarized the tale as follows. On an island there, there lived three old hermits. They were so simple that the only prayer they used was, We are three, thou art three, have mercy on us. Great miracles were manifested during this naive prayer. Imagine that, just that. We are three, thou art three, have mercy on us. The local bishop came to hear about the three hermits and their inadmissible prayer and decided to visit them in order to teach them the canonical invocations. So the bishop hears this and says, Here comes a prayer where I have, you know, this is not the sanctioned prayer by the house of Christ, and by God, I'm going to go and make sure that they hear and they understand and they learn all these really heavy prayers that are authorized by the church. He arrived on the island, told the hermits that their heavenly petition was undignified, and taught them many of the customary prayers. The bishop then left on a boat. He saw, following the ship, a radiant light. As it approached, he discerned the three hermits who were holding hands and running upon the waves in an effort to overtake the vessel. So these three hermits, and the bishop's on the, in the ocean already, the ship sailed, and he sees these three hermits running on top of the water, just towards it, and what he saw was this radiant light coming towards his ship. And these three hermits say, We have forgotten the prayers you taught us, they cried as they reached the bishop, and have hastened to ask you to repeat them. The awed bishop shook his head. Dear ones, he replied humbly, continue to live with your old prayer. How did the three saints walk on water? How did Christ resurrect his crucified body? How did Lahiri Mahashaya and Sri Yukteswar perform their miracles? Modern science has as yet no answer, though with the advent of the atomic bomb and the wonders of radar, the scope of the world mind has been abruptly enlarged. The word impossible is becoming less prominent in the scientific vocabulary. Now, one thing to remember is that Pastor wrote this book in 1946, so a lot of what he's written is, you know, from the 1930s, which at that time was like cutting, cutting edge science, like, oh my goodness, the television is about to come, and you know, a microscope was just you know, recently founded, and so on and so forth. So, for them, the atomic bomb and the wonders of radar, that was like, you know, the latest in technology. But of course, the theories that Master will talk about, that Yogananda-ji talks about, that just holds true in general, even if at that time their technology and their understanding of science isn't as or wasn't as it is now, which then brings us, in fact, even further. Um, before we go f into that, just this, it's such a sweet story, isn't it, in the beginning? Um, first and foremost, I think, of course, he doesn't say that there's any law at, in play here, but the one law that we can see is simplicity. We think because the universe 
and because as science you know discovers new and new ways to relate to the universe it's just so complicated isn't it like i mean i don't know how televisions work <laughs> you know i don't know how a car works i mean i just there's so much about this world i have no idea how it works and it just seems to me that wow i mean what kind of minds would it have taken to be able to figure out how a vehicle you put this engine and where the pistons would go and where the gears would connect and how that would move these tires i mean i guess to those guys it's fairly simple but for us it's just amazing and so we see this universe and the car of course is something so simple now already 100 years old um but when we look at the entirety of the universe it just seems it's so complex and therefore we naturally assume that the creator would also be equally complex you know his mind must be so crazy to be able to put all of this but he's actually the simplest because he's singular there is no other reality to him but him and then from that singularity from that big bang essentially came just so much variety and then when you look at this prayer of these three hermits and you just see them doing we are three thou art three have mercy on us and that's it that was their prayer that's all that's the relationship they shared with god or the divine in whatever form they tuned into and that was enough and plenty to draw great power in their lives so for me right here as we'll go into this really complicated explanation of the laws that govern the universe and therefore govern also the spiritual realms it's yogananda starts with true simplicity of just love of faith of deep connection with god and really then all the laws are already at play because if we if we tune into the simplicity simplicity means less and less and less and less right if we tune into variety too often and if we tune into the vastness and the infinity of it all too often it really scatters our energy simplicity means isko aur kam kiya isko aur kam kiya isko aur kam kiya eventually we need to get to the singularity but before we can get to singularity we get to simplicity which means there are actually just a few things to work on the very um bhagavad gita itself the mahabharat shows that in terms of there were five pandavas and there were a hundred kauravas and master uh, interpreted that as the ways of the world are numerous but the ways back to god are only a few so you just need five pandavas as opposed to a hundred kauravas there are hundred ways our energy can get scattered but there are just a few ways for us to return that energy back into our own center and so that's kind of the first feeling that's it it's important to hold before we get lost into oh my goodness you know what are all these laws because that can seem exciting but in the very beginning yogananda is kind of almost you can say ironically starting with the simplicity of these three hermits anything was, you yeah i was thinking also about that particular story that sometimes we think we need to help other people to change their way of worship mm. or their way of praying or their habits on how to relate to the divine and you know we're on presumption and of course sometimes because we deeply believe in what we have is so great and so you know the best even <laughs> better way that in the way they are doing we tend to impose a little bit um overweighs on other people and especially 
when it's related to their way of worship. That's something that always should be respected and always should be encouraged, no matter in whatever way they are approaching to the divine. That's, that's an area and a space that we never should presume or assume that they need our help. And better to wait to be asked if they really need help or if they want to know newer ways of praying or meditating or worship or singing or doing japas I mean, or you know rituals or ceremonies just you know be humble enough pray for them but don't impose especially with older people Nowadays, our generation, we can also see that they could be doing so much better and they are still attached to their old ways of perceiving even religion or spirituality. But who knows? Maybe they have their own ways and God is pleased uh, with the way they are doing it and the way they are praying. So it's a very fine line to always you know, respect uh, people's way of worship and way to be asked uh, before you impose your own advice or what you think uh, should be done better. Because it may work for us, but it may not work for them, <laughs> like in this case for the three hermits, you know, they had their way and that was their way. Coming back to this line, the word impossible is becoming less prominent in the scientific vocabulary. There's so much today that we have that even if we go back a hundred years, I mean, you don't have to go that far. If you go back a thousand years, you know, bhul jao. But there's so much, there was no way we, anybody back then would say, ye hone wala hai. you know, we'll be flying. There'll be electricity in everybody's homes. We won't depend solely on the sun to be able to see. I mean, so on and so forth. You will be able to just pick something out of your pocket and just call anybody across the entire planet. And now even if you want to speak to the <laughs> International Space Station, even that's possible. So this idea, when we look back at the past, you know, we are a little proud and we say, you know, we've come so far and now we know so much more. But if somebody asks you to stretch your awareness a little bit more, you know, we're like, bas, itna takhi. Even though we just realized that 50 years ago, what we now know, what we now do is so different. But we're not willing to say that other stuff will also come naturally to the fore. More and more will be discovered. And so an attitude in whatever you hold, an attitude to say, you know, anything's possible is a wonderful way. Even in our own, um, sometimes, you know, for our own teachings, other people talk about, oh, I'm doing this and it's, you know, this is how it's working for me. And may even seem to us a little bit like, you know, that's not our way at all. But anything is possible just because God's so infinite. There's no way that there's only a few kind of handful of, you know, varieties or versions or manifestations of his being. He's going to be infinite. And science is a wonderful thing from that perspective because it's constantly pushing the boundaries of human knowledge. 
And we need to also, even on the spiritual realm, while being very confident and solid and comfortable in everything that we do know, you know, not getting worried about, oh no, am I going to miss something out? Because what if they, you know, find something new and then my way go becomes obsolete or so on and so forth. But always knowing that anything is possible because God is infinite. And always keep that viewpoint because it keeps you very open to God for him to come to you and express himself to you in just numerous different ways. The ancient Vedic scriptures declare that the physical world operates under one fundamental law of Maya, which is the principle of relativity and duality. God, the soul life, is an absolute unity. He cannot appear as the separate and diverse manifestations of a creation except under a false or unreal veil. That cosmic illusion is Maya. Every great scientific discovery of modern times has served as a confirmation of this simple pronouncement of the Rishis. Newton's law of motion is a law of Maya. To every action there is always an equal and contrary reaction. The mutual actions of any two bodies are always equal and oppositely directed. Action and reaction are thus exactly equal. To have a single force is impossible. <laughs> Although we just said there's no such thing as impossible, but in Maya, nothing can exist except in duality. There must be and always is a pair of forces equal and opposite. This is the next extremely important law that all of us have to remember. Everything in this universe, in manifested world, expresses itself always in duality. Always. The only singular truth is God. And until we don't merge back into that singular truth, even when we're just very close to that singular truth, like these great masters are, when they come, when an avatar comes, when Krishna came, when Ram came, when any self-realized master comes from that infinite consciousness to take form in this world, they are now once again subject to duality. That's why Yogananda says here, God, who is absolute unity, cannot appear as the separate and diverse manifestations of a creation except under false or unreal veils. So even a great master has to take on a false and unreal form in order just to show us that direction. But this law is extremely important for us because if you seek one thing in this world, you are going to have to, as a natural consequence, also welcome the opposite. No force in this universe can exist as singular, which is a scary thought, which means if you're seeking happiness, you're going to have to invite sadness as well. If you're seeking success, you are going to have to contend with failure as well. In fact, as much success as you get, that much failure you will also get. Maybe not in that life, 
Maybe in one life you get to experience the success aspect of it, but in another life you will experience failure or you experience success in your business, but then you experience failure at home. You get to be a horrible father or husband or wife or mother or son or whatever it is. Because the universe exists entirely as a dualistic reality, which is very, 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 very important to realize. More from the perspective that there is nothing worth getting upset about. You know, we get like, just, why is this happening to me? Why am I not getting everything that I want? You are getting everything that you want, but the universe cannot allow a singular force to exist. The moment I throw a ball, which is this one force that's going, the ball's being acted upon instantaneously with the same force by the friction of the wind that it is passing through. Immediately, two forces are kind of simultaneously acting on that ball. If it weren't there, the ball would just go on off until infinity as it does in the vacuum of space. So what's very, very important in this reality is, and that's why we've been going through the Gita and Krishna just comes back again and again, even-minded, in the midst of praise or blame, in the midst of good or bad, in the, because that's where God is, even-minded in the midst of. If you want to experience that sole singular reality, you have to be exactly the same in the midst of success or failure, exactly the same in the midst of good and bad, in the midst of prayer, praise and blame, in the midst of horrible karma and amazing karma. That is where God is to be found, at the very center of that. And if we understand just this one thing, I mean, by saying understand, I don't mean that, oh yeah, we read it and it makes sense to us. If we truly understand and follow this one thing, the universe, I mean, and it's a scientific truth. It's not even, I mean, we're not even asking, you know, just be, you know, it's spiritual and you have to really tune into it from an unknown reality. It's a scientific truth. Nothing in the material world can exist as a singular reality. Nothing, not your joy, not your love, as long as it is conditioned by this world. That's why divine love, unconditional love, that's why the joy that we're seeking is that of bliss, that is singular. And bliss means happy under every circumstance. Bliss is not key, everything will be wonderful. You know, the great masters don't have it all wonderful. Krishna couldn't just sit around and say, well, yeah, I'm in bliss. No, he had to be in the mid middle of it all. He's trying to convince the Kauravas, please, let's not have a war. He's trying to run around here. He's protecting his village from all these calamities. He's, I mean, he had to engage completely with the world and all the issues that the world will naturally bring with all the karmas of the people that are around him. But in that, he was in bliss. And that's the state that we're trying to tune into. Anything you have to say? I was just thinking like, for many of us, we spend lifetimes trying, trying to change the laws of Maya, <laughs> the laws of this world, and therefore people around us, and without knowing that this is it, I mean, this is how 
this world, this is how these laws have been created for us. So, in a sense, the world is constantly reminding us, giving us hints through disappointments and through these laws that, guys, don't even try to change <laughs> these laws because these are like, they are set, you know, they are like imprinted for your soul evolution and you just need to find a way to not only deal with it, but to come out of it and not be entangled lifetime after lifetime with the belief that eventually one day everything will work out in my favor. Mm. And that's what we are always seeking for, looking for, trying to adjust, especially some of us who are super perfectionists in many ways, you know, we think the more perfect things, you know, eventually the day will come where everything will be perfect and all my friends will love me and I will have the perfect position, the great movie and the, the success I'm looking for, the finances. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's not how that's not how this world works. And I think what you were sharing is just like one of the most important teachings and concepts to understand. Because once we accept that, we start relaxing more, and we just cooperate with these laws, and we try to apply within this law of Maya the law of the divine, which is implementing the yamas and the yamas and you know, all the other things that will help us to cooperate with these laws and eventually take us out from it so we can keep evolving and reincarnate in different worlds and hopefully much more advanced where the law of Maya won't be so strongly, you know, like hitting us over and over again. In the Gita on Thursday, we were talking about, I mean, Krishna talks about, you know, people who un, through unlawful means uh, amass the fortunes that they're looking for so that they can spend it on physical, sensual pleasures. And this is exactly what he's talking about. This unlawful means where we want one, but we don't want the other. And we're willing to only accept that one and we want to push away all the time the other and especially in this reality of receiving if you want to receive from the universe the universe will extract the universe is like you know you see those movies where like the banks are not giving this person a loan so he has to go to the mafia <laughs> and he's gonna have to go and you know take this loan from this really unscrupulous guy but now over here it's like if he does not pay the guy is gonna send his thugs to extract that repayment. Think about the universe a little bit like that. If you want to receive, the universe will extract its payment from you. In different ways, through your help, through your relationships, through your lack of understanding, through your finances, through the people that you love and are around you. One way or the other, the universe will extract its payment for whatever you are asking for. That is why it's so important to be mindful of our prayers. If you ask for something from God, 
the universe will fulfill it. We were talking in the previous chapter, Yogananda says, every desire must be fulfilled. But that's a very scary thought. If every desire is going to be fulfilled, its opposite naturally comes into play because in duality, neither of one can exist without the other. Just can't exist. If you ask for happiness, sorrow is just going to be its bedfellow. It's going to be right there with it. If you ask for anything, the other will be taken. But what's interesting about this law and why it's helpful to know these laws is then you can use these laws. So if you give more to the universe, the universe is now obligated to give you. And isn't that an amazing thing? And that is why, especially on the spiritual path, we talk so much about service, don't we? Just give and put out energy and keep wanting to put out energy to give. And it doesn't matter who you're giving to particularly. Of course, in the uh, Gita, Krishna, every time he talks about services as service to your guru or service to holy men, because of course, if you can give to that vibration, then you get that vibration. If you give to a man of freedom, you receive freedom in return. If you give to a man of bliss, you receive bliss in return. If you give to a person, you receive whatever that vibration is of where you gave, which is also wonderful, isn't it? But that's one extremely simple way to tune into this law, if in fact, in a very selfish manner. Oh, okay, so if I retake, then the universe will take from me. But what if I give first? And that's the way we start using this law in its opposite form. And not wait for when will my prayer be answered, when will this happen to me, because... And again, you know, I'm sorry to be stressing this too much, but whatever will be fulfilled, its opposite will also have to happen. And back to that point, you know, if we receive whatever we put out, just go through your life, scan your life, and if there is any particular area of your life, whether it's finances, um, you know, the lack of love or the lack of recognition or the lack of, I don't know, you don't find the right job or the lack of support in your family or in your circle of friends. Perhaps a wonderful thing to do is to do more of that that you are lacking. To give more of that thing that you think you should be receiving more. So whatever you feel a lack of, do more of that. Put more energy out um, for that person, for that group of people. Serve more, give more, especially if you are going through a financial difficulties. I mean, every you know, one of the fun things about the spiritual path is that you become freer and freer from worries and fear and concerns. I mean. Every time that perhaps sometimes Shujas and I energy goes a little bit low, we just say, let's do something, or let's give more energy of this, or let's support this cause, or let's do something. So whenever you find yourself, the energy is dropping a little bit, or something is lacking in your life, just put much more out energy of that particular thing that you are begging for or you are asking the universe to give you because everything starts first from within us. 
So don't expect that somebody else will need to do your job. So start from within, start to be the one taking the first step, and then the universe will respond as he is, you know, responding to its own laws. Yogananda continues now, still in the vein of duality. He says, fundamental natural activities all betray their mayak origin. Mayak origin means that they all have duality as their bedrock. Electricity, for example, is a phenomenon of repulsion and attraction. Again, these are things we never think about, but all this electricity in our house, how electric current moves, is based on the same dual force, attraction and repulsion of the electrons. Its electrons and protons are electrical opposites. Another example, the atom or final particle of matter is like the earth itself, a magnet with positive and negative poles. The entire phenomenal world is under the inexorable sway of polarity. No law of physics, chemistry, or any other science is ever found free from inherent, opposite, or contrasted principles. This is a wonderful way to tune into, you know, sometimes we think of sp the spiritual world as different and separate. And uh, often when people say, you know, no, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, I mean, that itself makes, makes you feel like I'm not interested in you know, this material world, but there is no such real distinction, spiritual, material, there's just degrees of separation from spirit. And the material world is the most, you could say, concrete, gross manifestation of spirit itself. But in its concrete, you know, form-based reality, it's hard to see spirit behind it. So that's where science comes in and science loves to, you know, figure out what is and it just likes to keep going deeper and deeper. Uh, on one hand, it wants to go deeper and deeper to find that, you know, Higgs boson or whatever it is they're looking for in those uh, colliders. What are, they, what are those things called? <laughs> Super collider. Narayani, what are those things called? Um, you know, they're like trying to look for the God particle, just the smallest unit. And of course, every time they find something, there's something smaller still. Because Yogananda said, God stretches out both infinitely vast, but also, also infinitesimally small. Which means you'll never find an end. You can keep going and you'll always find some particle smaller than the previous. Yogananda here talks about the atom. Until that time, the atom was you know, held as the smallest unit of creation made up of course of electrons protons and neutrons but no matter what's going on in the world at the end of the day when you look at the universe and you look at manifested world it all is inherently talking about the same law and in here it's talking about the law of duality talking about the law of karma nothing in this universe can exist this form cannot exist this harmonium cannot exist if it doesn't have inside it both positive and negative particles clumped together. It can't be inherently entirely positive and it can't be inherently negative. If an atom molecules, how they come together is this is positive and it's waiting. Anything that's overtly positive is said to be unstable. 
and it will constantly look for whatever that next next negative is so that it comes together and creates a, a whole. You've got these, um, I'm going into chemistry maybe a little too much, but I don't know if you remember noble gases. You know, noble gases are the most stable things. And I love the word noble gases because they don't have everything else like chlorine is negative, sodium is positive. So sodium and chlorine come together and they form salt, interestingly. Um, but noble gases are perfect. They don't need anything else because they're, they're perfectly balanced, positive and negative. They're entirely stable. And that's how we want to become. Doesn't mean we have to have equal amount of positive qualities and equal amount of negative qualities. That's not what it means. It means that we combine the two and realize that no matter what's happening in the world, our consciousness remains the same. Our consciousness does not get swayed by, ah, oh, everything's so wonderful now and oh no, everything's so horrible now. Our consciousness of joy, of bliss, remains exactly the same. So we have to become noble gases of our own being, where nothing outside us, we don't need the next circumstance. Sodium needs the next chlorine to make sense in its life. You know, and so on and so forth. Hydrogen needs the oxygen uh, atom in order to create water. It doesn't, cannot exist by itself. So they constantly have circumstances to create for it the right state of being. But a noble gas, a noble being, a noble soul, a self-realized master, no circumstance can either fulfill it or destroy it. Because in itself, it's entirely complete, purna. The whole exists in it already. Physical science then, Yogananda says, cannot formulate laws outside of Maya, which is another interesting limitation of science. Science will never be able to peer behind the curtain because it can only work with physical laws. It only understands physical laws, so it will only, only be able to better understand Maya, but it will never understand the creator of Maya because it's subject to duality. The very texture, oh, sorry, si physical science then cannot formulate laws outside of Maya, the very texture and structure of creation. Nature herself is Maya. Natural science must perforce deal with her ineluctable quiddity. These are the words that Narayani was talking about. I had to look them up as well. Ineluctable quiddity, which means it's essence, it's unchangeable essence. This is what Maya is. Maya is dual and therefore anything science finds will be guided by that duality. In her own domain she is eternal and inexhaustible. For future scientists can do no more than probe one aspect after another of her varied infinitude. Science thus remains in a perpetual, perpetual flux unable to reach finality, fit indeed to formulate the laws of an already existing and functioning cosmos, but powerless to detect the law framer and soul operator. Which is an interesting thing. The universe already exists. I mean, science is not going to be able to do any more than to show us how it already exists. This harmonium exists. 
all science can do is tell us what are the atoms it's made of. But it can't tell us how it exists. <laughs> what brought it into existence, they'll never know. So they'll tell you how the laws of the cosmos operate, which is wonderful and that's what we're talking about. Because if I understand the laws of the operation of the cosmos, I understand the laws of that govern my own being while I'm in the cosmos. While I'm in creation, these are the laws that are going to govern my life. And if I want to get out of it, these are the laws I'm going to have to separate myself from. This is what meditation is. Withdrawing the life force into the Shushumna away from the Ida and the Pingala. Just as simple as that. Ida is the good, Pingala is the bad, Ida is the up, Pingala is the down. All of us want to remain in the up. But if you are in the up, in the Ida, you're going to have to experience the down of the Pingala. Our Kriya practice is specifically using the energy of the Ida and the Pingala in a way to neutralize both those energies into the Shushumna. And so if you understand that law as basic as our own spiritual make, and then you realize it's exactly the same law that's in operation all around us all the time. The majestic manifestations of gravitation and electricity have become known, but what gravitation and electricity are, no mortal knoweth. I mean, science can tell you that this is how gravity works, but why does gravity exist in the first place? What exactly this force is, we don't really know. We can harness that force, we can use that force. Because we understand gravity, we've been able to put satellites into space. But beyond that, the very force and fabric of gravity, we'll never know. Or at least not yet. To surmount Maya was the task assigned to the human race by the millennial prophets. To rise above the duality of creation and perceive the unity of the creator was conceived as was conceived of as man's highest goal. Those who cling to the cosmic illusion must accept its essential law of polarity, flow and ebb, rise and fall, day and night, pleasure and pain, good and evil, birth and death. There's something so, I don't know, I mean, even though it sounds a little hard, but there's something so reassuring about this reality. And it is as simple as this. As long as you believe that what you're seeking will be found in this world, you will forever be subject to the polarities of life. It's just that simple. And then, you know, we don't need to confuse ourselves. We don't need to be like, why not I with me and why am I not able to buy? If you think that then you're going to have to just... I mean, what's lovely is that there's such an impersonal... It's a science... Next time someone will say, yeah, science is <laughs> Then nobody can argue with you. And you, the moment you say, why science hai? <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's scientific. It's as simple as that. It just can't exist. It doesn't exist outside of duality. So, next time you wonder and are a little confused and you're a little upset, why does duality work so well? You just know, it's just, that's the fabric of this universe. The moment you turn your awareness and you seek solely, and that's the hard part, isn't it? Solely that divine sucker, the divine mana, 
then and only then will you be able to draw on it, which is also wonderful because that's the other law. What you seek, you're going to get. The moment you set your sights on God and solely on God, then God becomes your reality and then you're no longer subject to the ebb and flow of this world. Isn't that just an amazing thought? All we have to do in order to escape the dual movement is just shift entirely our awareness on the singular soul operator, law giver of this universe. If you're with the king, then it doesn't matter if you were sentenced to death by his ministers because the king's going to now override any law that he himself set in his kingdom. And that's the kind of the simplistic way. Of course, it's so hard because we're just so committed to this world. Despite us even saying that I don't want to do anything, I really want to merge back into that infinite bliss and peace of my own being. Yeah, that's a good first step. <laughs> but the truth is we're really very committed to this world. We still very strongly believe our happiness will come from here. We still very strongly believe that fulfillment does lie here. We still very strongly believe so on and so forth. Whatever it is, whatever thought, hope, desire, expectation you have, that your friend will just be the exact, that Narayani will be that perfect wife that I have always been looking for. <laughs> but you know, if I demand perfection from Narayani, then the universe will demand perfection from me. And he's going to make my life really hard. Because in order for him to see me as perfect, I'm going to have to let go of absolutely everything. Because as long as duality exists, perfection by definition cannot exist. When Swamiji created Ananda, in the very beginning when he was formulating, you know, just the guidelines for what Ananda is, and one of the guidelines he's put is, we are not seeking to create a perfect paradise here on earth because such perfection is an impossibility. And sometimes that's what we, you know, I'll just make this world perfect and if I can, if all the races can just live in harmony and if all the animals can just be protected and if all the hunger can just be, it just doesn't exist that way. Where there is fulfillment, there will always be lack. In duality, where there is a full belly, there will always be an empty belly. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't go around and trying to fill that belly as well. We must, as long as we're in this universe, as long as we're in the material world, we do whatever will refine our consciousness. But never with the delusion that perfection will then be established here on earth. Because in duality, perfection cannot exist. Perfection is a state of singularity, which has no opposite. This might be a little bit more difficult to practice, but it will be good for all of us. And sometimes I try to do that as well within myself. Whenever a disappointment comes or a frustration or something that has not turned out in the way that we think it should, you know, try to see all the disappointments and the betrayals or whatever we all need to go through as loving reminders <laughs> from the universe that, you know, this is not where 
you should be looking for happiness and see those sorrows and grief and disappointments really as loving reminders to the soul that we shouldn't be working towards making of this world a perfect one but rather to keep oof, my attention was distracted for a moment for a year for a lifetime <laughs> in the search of this you know material goal but thank god i'm being disappointed thank god that expectation wasn't fulfilled thank god i was fired from that job because otherwise how would i know where true happiness lies and, and how would i know where should i find and search and look for that happiness so i think that i love god really <laughs> and how he has created this mess because at least he's constantly <laughs> reminded us where our you know direction should go where our attention should be put so don't be discouraged in fact when you are going through a period where nothing works because god is showing a really interest uh, for your growth and see that he really wants to remind you of something so pay attention especially to a disappointment to a betrayal to something that has not turned out in the way that it should or you think it should should we continue how much time do we have one minute <laughs> Let's just finish this paragraph at least. This cyclic pattern assumes a certain anguishing monotony. After man has gone through a few thousand human births, he begins to cast a hopeful eye beyond the compulsions of Maya. We've talked about this so many times, haven't we? That word we use often because it just captures the essence of it so beautifully. Anguishing monotony. Kalia, 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 kalia. Again and again, we tried, we tried, we tried, and after a while, you start to realize. I think I've done this before. <laughs> I think I tried this before. <laughs> you know, I think I sought. Yeah, I think I sought fame before. I think I sought. If there is a desire that's a very prevalent desire in the world, and it does not hold any sway over you. there's a very good chance that you've just done it so much so often you've sought it for so long received it so many times uh, have been disappointed in it so many times that now it's like you've just been able to understand that that's not going to give me the happiness that i seek but then there are other things that were still a little confident isse ho jayega usse ho jayega until we don't establish to a certain degree that anguishing monotony in these major desires in our life for these major hopes and dreams chances that will turn towards god are actually fairly slim which is another interesting way to look at it when somebody asks swami ji and we've shared this story before why aren't more people on the spiritual path because it makes absolute sense to be on the spirit you know from our perspective is like i don't know why others aren't doing what we're doing because it makes perfect sense those guys are of course thinking we are the weirdos <laughs> like i don't know what those guys are doing it makes perfect sense to seek power and money and fame in this world 
But why aren't more people on the spiritual path? And Swami just said, because they've not suffered enough. And that suffering is not that they've not gone through some, you know, hellish pain. That suffering is the suffering of anguishing monotony. When anguishing monotony sets in and you just, you've gotten to that absolute moment and you say, I can't do this anymore. I just can't repeat this pattern again, one more time. And that's the memory that we bring with us lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. I don't remember who I was in my previous life and it doesn't matter because all I know and all I need to know is I just can't do that again. And I need to now seek something else. And only then, as Yogananda says, he begins to cast a hopeful eye beyond the compulsions of Maya. So it's okay for people not to be on the spiritual path. On one hand, as Yogananda said, everybody's on the spiritual path because everybody's seeking bliss. They're just, you know, looking for it in many different places for now, which is not a big deal. Um, because for a saint, for God, for a self-realized master, they're just, they know everybody's eventually going to get to the point where they'll seek God. Everybody's going to get to that point after they've done their rounds, after a child has been on the merry-go-round and has gone oh, round, 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 a thousand million times, then the child says, bus, I can't take it anymore. And that's how we will be after we've done this cycle over and over again. So, you know, be mindful that you don't keep returning back to that cycle once that awareness has come to really, because the draws of those subconscious uh, samskars, those, you know, habit patterns, those thought patterns, they're very strong because you've put out a lot of energy into them. You've sought, you know, the world's fulfillments for so long. You cannot say that I'm no longer interested in the world. The truth is that energy that's gone into the world is still very strong because for lifetimes we've been putting it out. But we just have to ensure now that the energy we're putting towards God or towards the divine or whatever it is that you want to call this wonderful, final, blissful state of being, that has to be stronger still. Because again, those two dual forces are at play. Even God, while we're seeking him through Maya, exists as the positive pole to the negative pole of Maya. So even in that, there will forever be two pulls on our own consciousness, on our own awareness, where our effort, at least, needs to be towards that one final pull. Anything else? Last parting remarks. Well, we made it through two pages. You can see the, you know, <laughs> we're going to, it gets a little more and more technical as we go along. And then eventually he gets to the actual law of miracles. But right now he's just, you know, building the framework upon which then he can share how those miracles can manifest and how we can start manifesting more and more. But these two wonderful concepts that we've started with, simplicity, the simplicity of those hermits, because simplicity is the closest we'll get to singularity. The less you have in your life, the less dual energies are around you. So that's simplicity, that's the first law. And the second law is duality itself. And when you understand everything in this world exists in pairs, you won't be that confused. You won't be that, um, you know, affected when opposites will always come into your life. You'll just say, of course it will, because I'm seeking this. So then the other must therefore come. So let me try to seek something beyond these two. All right, everybody. So